You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Hi, welcome to Comeback City, where we explore Detroit's past, present, and future. Today, we are talking about Edsel Ford, the mostly forgotten son of Henry Ford. That's right. This episode is brought to you by Spectacular Strolls. Spectacular Strolls offers 15 historic walks in Detroit. Each walk is a self-guided 20-minute tour. Visit SpectacularStrolls.com to order your next Detroit history adventure. I'm Linda Shepard, and with me today is my co-host, Ed Brohard. Hi, Ed. Hello, Linda. Yeah, Henry, Henry Ford. Only son of, I mean, Edsel Ford, only son of Henry Ford. You know, Henry was this huge personality, a powerful, driven, brilliant, wealthy egomaniac. Kind of. You know, Edsel was born in in, uh, 1883, named for one of Henry's closest boyhood friends. Um, I think it was 93. In 93, that, yeah. yeah, I think I transposed these two numbers here. <laughs> Easy to do. <laughs> um, yeah, so we've been kind of doing a little bit of research into Edsel's uh, childhood here. Um, it was fun. It really was. Um, when I thought first thought, Edsel Ford, geez, you know, what are you going to say? Um, every Detroiter knows the name Edsel Ford. They drive on the Edsel Ford Freeway. Uh, there's a number of schools named for Edsel Ford. Uh, and, of course, uh, the infamous Edsel from the 1950s. That's uh, what most people remember. Uh, that's what most people remember. And so it probably has a negative connotation. So, you know, either Edsel becomes sort of a cultural joke uh, or beca- or associated with failure somehow, uh, or he's kind of under the radar. And yet, as you and I both discovered, uh, he was absolutely key to the Ford Motor Company's success and to, in many ways, to the um, the whole art scene in Detroit. You know, what I was so surprised at was that he, that he was Henry and Clara's only child. That's right. So he was adored. He really was. And when he was little, Henry wasn't all capital Henry Ford back then. He was just kind of tinkering around with engines and motors and, you know, Edsel was always with them. Right. I think he spent a lot of time uh, with his father um, in in the the workroom, the workshop, the garage, uh, tinkering on motors, tinkering, tinkering on how things worked and really learning that business from the ground up. He really was. And Edsel was the kind of kid that he always aimed to please his father. Yeah. He, I don't really, I did not find any information that said he really had any kind of a rebellious streak. No, no. Although, you know, he, he was willing to defer to his father and, and put things on the back burner. Um, Edsel would love to have uh, gone to college. He privately said many times that he wished that he had a college education, which he didn't. He didn't. But Henry wanted him to come right out right of into the school business. into the business. And so he did because he wanted to please his dad. You know, he was different from his father. You know, he, although he didn't have the genius for engineering that Henry had, Edsel, you know, possessed a really strong worth ethic and a gift that led him to the arts. Yeah, yeah. He, he definitely saw the artistic side of something. He was interested in things that were beautiful, that were streamlined, that appealed to the eye. Henry really didn't care about that. He was he he envisioned something like the Model T that would be practical and usable and could transform society. But he didn't care what it looked like. His famous quote was, it was available in any color you wanted as long as it was black. He was more into uh, form, I mean, or function rather than function form. Function than form. And, um, you know, eventually it was Edsel that, uh, and it took him many years to do this, uh, convinced his father 
I don't know if he ever convinced him, got his father to agree that uh, for the survival of the company, something also had to be more than just a basic function. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but while he was a teenager and in his early 20s, Henry Ford was – uh, beginning to become Henry Ford with the factories and collecting wealth. And Etzel entered the social sphere of Detroit's elite young. And um, there were stories about him driving his roadster to Belle Isle and mm-hmm. down the cobblestoned Woodward Avenue to Birmingham. That's right. And um, when he married, uh, he married the niece of J.L. Hudson. Right. Eleanor Lothian Clay. Clay. Yeah. In her home on Boston Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And uh, from all reports, the ceremony was understated, which I think was their style. That was their style. They they wanted the best of things, but not, not necessarily the most garish, the most splashy. They weren't Kardashians. No, they were not Kardashians. They uh, wanted – they didn't mind flying under the radar, really. No. And then they moved to a house on uh, Iroquois Street in Indian Village, mm-hmm. and it was not the biggest house. No, I um, I Googled it um, the other day and actually went to their uh, streetwise uh, view, and um, I'm going kind of up and down the block, and I thought, that's their house. It's lovely. It's beautiful. It's also not the biggest house on the block. No. So when he was just in his early 20s, he became the president of Ford Motor Company. That's right. And, you know, and I guess in a move that's believed to have been orchestrated by Henry to allow himself to remain in complete control. So, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, you know, that whole Model T thing was Henry's baby. You know, he didn't want to mm-hmm. give that up. No. He uh, uh, he installed Edsel as the secretary first in 1915 and um, then shortly thereafter um, became actually president. But as you pointed out, it was kind of a name only because Henry really wanted to pull the strings and run things. And sometimes this led to conflict. But – I think that Edsel was just too uh, polite and devoted a son to ever, you know, like publicly go up against his father. But I'm sure it put a lot of internal pressure on him, Edsel, um, because he knew what really needed to happen in the company. Right. Um, So he had to diplomatically find ways that for that to happen. Yeah. uh, He, you know, he wanted. A more modern automobile to replace the Model T, but he was repeatedly overruled by his father. Yeah, and sometimes in uh, in kind of public and uh, humiliating ways, um, in board meetings. I mean, it was uh, no- notoriously reported that Henry would sometimes say, "Sit down and shut up," you know, when Edsel would bring up ideas. Uh, and this, you know, for many people, this would be crushing, but. Um, Edsel stayed loyal and, uh, you know, fought for what he believed in, but he did it in a quiet, understated way. Yeah, I think the relationship between the father and son was always close, but always fraught with unhealthy aspects. Yeah, the, um, uh, it, to me, it was described, and I agree f- fully in this, as kind of a left brain, right brain thing. The uh, Edsel was definitely the left brain, more artistic person that uh, appreciated the beauty and the um, the the appearance and the overall structure of something. Henry was the right brain mathematician, um, pragmatist who wanted simply for it to work in a certain way, and he, he didn't really care how it looked. And as he got older, he got just kind of crabbier and meaner. Yeah, yeah. And he also had some uh, – and we'll probably talk about this later. But uh, Henry also ha- had developed some serious prejudices and some um, kind of view worldviews that really were um, in some ways kind of loathsome. And uh, It's uh, almost he, – he kind of darkened. 
you know, and kind of it was almost unsettling the way he changed. Right. I, you know, I, I'm not sure how he started out. I mean, certainly he was idealistic about the idea of uh, presenting something that could improve society in such a huge way and did. Um, but yeah, politically, he became more and more conservative and uh, something that uh, whether it had all, always been with him or not, uh, certainly emerged and that was a very strong um, uh, problem with certain ethnic groups, uh, particularly anti-Semitism. Particularly. And he dominated his gifted son, Edsel. And, um, you know, we haven't talked about this yet, but Edsel died young. Yeah, he did. Um, 49 years old. He didn't quite make it to his uh, 50th. And, you know, a lot of people believe that Henry just hounded poor Edsel into his grave. I mean, he did die of stomach cancer, but... That's right. But he had had a history of ulcers as a young adult. So, um, and he took on just a, an immense workload, some of it by choice, some of it because he had to, to run the company. Uh, but he always saw himself as kind of the buffer between his father, who could be kind of irascible and, and hard to deal with, and um, the workers, the uh, the kind of philanthropic mission of the the uh, Ford Motor Company as as a major employer in the country and certainly in Detroit, um, and you know th this put on a huge amount of pressure on him. It really did. And yet, even with that, he seemed to be a, a pretty even keeled person. Um, he. You know, he, he kept and, his cool. He kept his cool. He and Eleanor, um, you know, created kind of a beautiful family in a way and um, lived, a, I won't say a simple life because it was certainly a very good life, but um, one that <clears throat> was, as we mentioned, kind of um, maybe a little less uh, overtly glamorous. I mean, he he kind of uh, appreciated his privacy, and you saw that in in how the family lived their life together. Absolutely. So Edsel and Eleanor had four children: mm -hmm. Henry the Second, uh, Benson, Josephine Clay, and William Clay. Right. So um, they ended up moving and building this beautiful home. Um, at Gawker Point. Gawker Point, yeah. In, um, it, it, and it was interesting because it's in the Gross Points, but it's just about as far out it's in the, the Gross Points as you can get. Kind of the in fact, half of northern it is, edge. Half, half of it is actually in Macomb County. Right. Uh, and so it, it's in Gross Point Shores uh, at the very end of Lake Point before it goes back to being Jefferson and moves into St. Clair Shores. Um, on just an amazingly beautiful tract of land that had originally been um, settled by uh, the indigenous Indians there. And um, it hadn't really been developed at all. And uh, he built the just an amazing house there. And I think it's kind of telling that it's far from where Henry and Clara lived, which was Fairlane in mm – -hmm. You know, way over on the other side of Detroit. It's polar opposites, and I don't think that's by you know coincidence. I don't either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he knew he had to work with his dad, and and uh, that was probably a kind of a mixed blessing. But when it came to his own personal life and his family life, he kind of settled as far away <laughs> as he could. He did from his father. I know you and I have been both. We've both been to uh, Etzel's house, mm -hmm. and um, I'm struck by the beauty of the of the location. Oh, I know it, it, it really is. It's so pretty, and there is a canal that is kind of connected to the larger body of water that they can put. You know, people can put their boats in, mm -hmm. and but kind of almost gives it. An island effect, or at least a peninsula effect. There, right. It's out. It is out on a point, and um, you know we should state that in an actual city, this is a huge tract of land. I mean, it's you know eighty some acres, 
which is is huge, yeah, uh, and with with a very long lakeshore frontage. And yeah. it's so nice that it is open to the public for tours and viewing year-round, I think. Well, Eleanor, his widow, lived much longer than he did. She died in her 70s. Uh, and um, in in her will, she left the um, the house in perpetuity to be open to the public and uh, uh, began with a uh, $15 million endowment to – uh, keep it up, and it was for the betterment of the community. But she was very specific about it remaining that way, being open to the public, and certainly not being sold off or subdivided. She had seen all the uh, the beautiful estates, um, you know, in in the Gross Points and in other places over the years. You know, after the the original owners passed away, just being broken up and Difficult subdivided, to maintain. Yeah. yeah, and she didn't want that to happen. Right. And uh, they, she knew that they had an architectural gem and and uh, wanted it to to remain so. And so it's 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 a lovely place to visit. It really is kind of a respite. And it was designed by Albert Kahn. Yes, it was. Yeah. Um, and based on a Cotswold? Yeah. The Cotswolds are uh, an area of England, um, not too far from London, but very rural, uh, uh, very idyllic. Um, and y- you immediately recognize uh, Cotswold architecture because it's got kind of the low-slung um, shingled roofs and – uh, you almost ama- uh, imagine it kind of out in rolling countryside, and it's got a fairy tale uh, yeah, aspect. It really, to do- it. it really does, and um, it's um, they wanted this, and they actually uh, went along with Albert Kahn to England to scout out. Cotswold villages. Have you ever been to the Cotswolds? I have, and they're just gorgeous. I have too. Um, yeah. A few years ago, we went to Castle Coombe, which I think is the city that they made the movie Dr. Doolittle in. Oh, okay. And I think it was voted England's prettiest village. Mm-hmm. And, oh, my gosh, it really was so pretty. Right. And this is kind of the antithesis of sort of the – the the grand English estate, the uh, you know the Downton Abbey sort of thing, and w- which was very popular among uh, when when some of the uh, industry uh, barons of industry wanted to create their huge palaces here in in the U.S. Uh, they kind of looked to that. This is really very different from this. This is not the Biltmore. No, no, this is not the Biltmore. It's not the Breakers. It's not Newport. It's um, it's on it's it's on a more believable scale. Uh, it's only how many <laughs> how many square feet? Uh, it's 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 a big place, but it's not. It's not huge. It's not huge, and it uh, there's a sense of a, a smaller scale, a more intimate scale. Yeah, it's it's very beautiful, and um, the Ford family had other homes also around the country. Uh, they have uh, they built a summer estate, Skylands, in Seal Harbor in mm-hmm. Maine. And yeah. um, as a fan, I know that Martha Stewart now owns that property. Yes, I know. I do and know that. Like I said, I'm a fan. Uh, you're a fan. So I've seen lots of pictures of it in her magazine. Right. It's on Mount Desert Island, and um, it's a, a beautiful spot. I haven't been there, but I have seen pictures of it. I want to make it there someday. That would be fun to go there. I yeah. would love that too. Yeah. I guess it's up on a cliff with right. an incredible view. So the right. water was important to them. Yeah. It's one of the first places that the uh, – uh, the the sunrise hits the continental United States. So very beautiful and kind of wild. Well, I think both um, Edsel and his wife, Eleanor, really had an eye for beauty and mm-hmm. not just ostentatiousness. No. They wanted something really beautiful and artistic and, you know, with a great design. They were looking way past just 
big. Absolutely. Uh, here's an interesting factoid for you. In the 1930s, guess who, guess who was uh, the number one in the polls best-dressed man in America? I think I know, but you tell us, Ed. Edsel Ford uh, was judged this. Uh, and guess who was number nine? Fred Astaire. Oh, my gosh. So that'll give you some, wow. some idea. Uh, Fred Astaire was only nine, but Edsel Ford was number one. Isn't and that yet, something? And yet it was never ostentatious. No. It was never over the top. It was never silly looking. It was never a mystery big shot. But, you know, the pictures that I have seen of him, he looks very dapper. Very dapper, very classy. Very classy. Yeah. His favorite color was um, uh, a certain shade of gray. Because he felt it was understated and that it worked so well with so many other colors. So, uh, yeah. That yeah, was, he was a pretty classy guy. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, they, um, there's a portrait of him uh, in, in the home. And it also uh, – the original is in the Detroit Institute of Arts. And it shows him in a double-breasted suit. Um, looking not like some big shot boss, but just as just a, a, a very artistic and kind of intelligent, thoughtful person, sort of leaning forward on a table. Um, it's a nice picture. This is Edsel, for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about um, the Detroit Institute of Arts. First of all, Edsel and his wife, were very involved in just initiating a lot of the art. Yeah, it was just incredible. Um, of course, you know, we've mentioned in other podcasts that this was the period of time where it was really the golden age of Detroit. Roaring 20s. There was roaring 20s, huge uh, influx of population, um, which meant, you know, uh, wealth, um, uh, building, uh, and of course, as Detroit became a world class city, at one point it was um, it, it it was even um, they even felt that it might become the second largest city in the country and by Paris Chicago, of the Midwest, Paris of the Midwest, and so they wanted to have the best of everything, the best of schools, the best of uh, architecture. Um, I think they've accomplished that. Yeah, and with the art. Yeah, so and a lot of the architecture. Yeah, for sure. And this was the period that that really saw the great development in that, and uh, the Edsel Fords were were instrumental in it. Uh, Henry had done um, the father had had done some philanthropic things, but never in an artistic sense at all. Uh, and this was. You know, Edsel's great passion. So um, he, as the Detroit Institute of Arts grew as an institution and they uh, had a um, uh, an amazing director uh, named Valentiner who um, uh, grew the, the institution, one of the people that was instrumental in this was Edsel Ford, um, you know, beginning a lot of the major collections there. Well, the Ford's hope was that art would enrich the lives of others as well as their own. Right. And, you know, they were very committed during the Depression. They helped to pay the salaries of the staff at the DIA to avoid a shutdown. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the big things that they did was they really made it possible for Diego Rivera to transform the uh, DIA's inner court with fresco murals. That's right. And so we we now have um, probably the best example of the great artist Diego Rivera's um, murals here in Detroit, Detroit Industry. And as you've mentioned, it's on all four walls of the huge garden court, which had really pretty much been unadorned originally. And um, – you know that it it at first seemed like a very very strange choice because here you had this um, this uh, very wealthy American business family, and who do the who does Edsel Ford choose to bring to uh, 
you know, decorate uh, this uh, very formal space, but a Mexican um, revolutionary re revolutionary <laughs> artist, right? <laughs> And uh, this was in the early part of the 30s when, you know, there was real talk in the, uh, in, in, in the nation about possibly a revolution, you know, if, if the uh, depression continued, if uh, – I think there was a danger. There was a danger and, uh, you know, the, the – so, so the idea of bringing somebody to, to Detroit just – A Marxist. A Marxist communist – uh, who would who would obviously bring that into his art? His art was very political, um, and yet uh, when the two men met, it was kind of a match made in heaven. They really had mutual respect for each other, even though they came from totally different backgrounds. It's amazing that uh, Edsel could do that, really. And mm -hmm. it, you know, he had a lot of criticism too. I mean, you know, the churches. Condemned the murals as blasphemous. Oh, they wanted them painted over. They demanded they be removed. Um, you know, they thought it glory, uh, glorified communist uh, communism that it was godless, Marxist propaganda. That's right. But um, no, uh, in fact, at one point, I think uh, Diego Rivera was only commissioned to do one wall and then he decided he ended up staying in the Detroit area for I think a year. That's right. Touring the factories mm -hmm. before he even started on this and just really immersing himself in the whole factory. He was culture. absolutely uh fascinated by the uh the Ford Rouge plant. Oh yeah. Which had been built in the twenties and was the largest factory in the world. And um you know he he was not only fascinated by how it worked, but how it employed such a giant spectrum of humanity, uh, all working toward, you know, one goal. Um, now, he'd idealized some of that. I mean, you, you look at the Detroit in, uh, industry murals and you see this just incredible mix of um, every race, every type of person – all seemingly working together and you know happily toward a, a common goal. The reality was that uh, things weren't quite like that. I mean, just just days before he arrived, uh, there had been five workers killed by Pinkerton detectives at the at the uh, Rouge plant um, for staging an unlawful strike. Um, the fact was that. Uh, That's not in the mural. No, no. The, and the fact uh, – and what is in the mural is uh, pictures of people from all sorts of different racial backgrounds working shoulder to shoulder. That didn't really happen. The the people that were on the, the line were uh, working together uh, were all exclusively white. Uh, and this was by design from Henry Ford. But um, – the and, and people of color who worked there – Definitely were doing more menial jobs right. in the background, the worst of the worst. So, um, yes, there, so there was some idealization that, uh, that went on there. But the idea of it and as a goal to work toward certainly was there in, in Diego Rivera's mind. Well, I guess, um, like I said, he was only commissioned to do one wall and mm -hmm. he wanted to keep on going and do that entire courtyard. Mm -hmm. And uh, Valentina was kind of nervous about talking to Etzel about it because, mm -hmm. you know, it would take more money, more time, more everything. But when they did approach him about it, Etzel said, no, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. He doubled, he doubled the amount that he um, said, you know, that he was paying for. So. It is um, really something to see. You know, I can't stop looking at it when mm -hmm. I'm at the DIA. It's kind of like almost a an endless type story. I mean, there's so much going on. You could spend in there. yes, you could you could spend every time you go you you um, spend time looking at the murals. You see something new. Oh, you see something very yeah. different, and you see um, a new connection um, between things. Uh, the the mural is really a contrast uh, uh, between things, and um, it's 
you know, it, it is not just a, a a realistic view of a factory. I mean, it talks about um, ecology and science and aviation and um, it includes th- everything. Yes, right. Uh, and really gives a, a pretty strong message of uh, racial harmony, and um, so it's um, it, it's a very it, important. It, it's an important piece work. Of art. It's an amazing thing to see. We can be very thankful that it wasn't removed or trashed. Absolutely. Now it's considered a, a real centerpiece. Yeah, it's entitled Detroit Industry, and um, when it was finished, uh, you know, it had a lot of criticism, but it also stimulated a very large increase in attendance at oh, the yeah. DIA. People wanted to come and Everyone see what all the fuss was it. about. Yeah, that's right. And Edsel defended the art all the way, mm-hmm. um, and I think they even had a uh, a little sign there at one point. Stating that you know Rivera's politics were detestable. Yes. It was a, it was a disclaimer, you know. <laughs> it was a disclaimer, a total disclaimer. Uh huh. Which but, was which I thought was pretty funny. I mean, you know, it's sort of like, well, that's one of the things that's really cool about it. But you know, go ahead, put up your disclaimer as long as it stays. And in in addition to his, um, you know. Uh, contributions to the DIA. He also, uh, Edsel also helped fund uh, exploration in Antarctica. That's right. He, you know, because he, um, during the, the wartime, uh, when, we, when we entered into World War II, Detroit became the arsenal of democracy, uh, meaning that probably we would not have been successful in the war had um, cities like Detroit and especially Detroit itself uh, not geared up fully to support the war with the kind of materiel and, and uh, armaments that the war effort needed. And so the, the big three, the, the auto companies, ceased, ceased making cars. They ceased their domestic production and all of their efforts went into the war effort. Um, and none more so than the Ford company, um, particularly in aircraft at, at Willow Run. Right. Uh, as far as I could tell, a B-50, a B-24 was produced, um, one an hour. I know. That was Edsel's goal that, that he would produce a, uh, a B-52, uh, bomber one an hour, which is just amazing. Of course, uh, Willow Run is the the, the place where uh, the uh, iconic character of Rosie the Riveter uh, is depicted. Right. Yeah. So you had um, huge employment um, at the at at during World War Two. Yeah, at at companies like this and and at the other ones from uh, Chrysler and, and General Motors that were scattered all over the Detroit area and around the country, but especially here. Uh, so. He – Edsel had always been interested in aviation and um, even – so back in the 20s, um, it, because of, of his, his interest in this, he was really interested in uh, funding explorations. And um, one of the, the, uh, the most famous then was Admiral Byrd, Robert Byrd, who was exploring the, the poles, beginning with the North Pole. And flying over it for the first time, and then later Antarctica, the South Pole. Oh, I guess I didn't realize that it started with the airplanes, mm-hmm. and the bombers, and then. Well, you know, I, I obviously this was the twenties, so this is before uh, uh, right World War Two. But yes, he had a great interest in aviation. That's oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, so, and, and that's what Bird was doing was flying initially, and so. Um, um, Edsel Ford financed these trips and in fact the Antarctica trip uh, where they were actually for the first time mapping out the entire geography of the South Pole uh, in homage to the, the support he got from Edsel, uh, Byrd named all these places for him. In fact, there's an Edsel Ford mountain range. That's a, a pretty uh, impressive thing. That's um, very impressive. Right on a globe uh, in the South Pole and and other places named for uh, for Ford 
There's like the Ford Massif. There's the um, Ford various spots in, in, in Arctica that have a Ford connection. But meanwhile, you know, Edsel is dealing with his dad. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was very stressful for him. Sure. Trying to run the, the company where um, – and placate your father who's – uh, not officially the president, but still acting like he is in some ways. And, and so um, this probably took a, a, a major toll on I think his health it did. and everything. Absolutely. And he was only 49 when he died. Right. That's of, true. Of stomach cancer. But as you said, he'd had all those ulcers and stomach problems mm-hmm. basically for his whole life. Right. Uh, it's really interesting. Um when you, when you see the, the kind of life that he wanted to lay, lead and the, the kind of private family life that he encouraged, um, I was quite moved at um, going to the Edsel and Eleanor Ford House at Galkler Point um, because, like we mentioned, it's on kind of a smaller scale and especially when you go upstairs and see the kids' rooms and how everyone lived – um, these are not massive, huge rooms. They're beautiful, but they're like for real living, you know? Um, they're a regular bedroom. Yeah, you can almost imagine them like s- something out of Ozzy and Harriet or uh, uh, Leave it to Beaver, you know? These were actually the kids' rooms, and they weren't done in necessarily a former style. In fact, uh, very popular then was the new streamlined kind of Art Deco look, and that's how some of those rooms are, fi- are furnished, and they've got, you know, little um, stereos and record players and everything, but they're all kind of built in. Uh, they're beautiful, and, you know, they're a, a kid's dream room, but it's not like you're living in a castle or something. Right, and, and I'm thinking Meadowbrook Hall, which right. is out in Rochester, Yeah, the Dodge uh, – Mansion, mm-hmm. you know, John Dodge's wife, Matilda, and right. her husband, Alfred Wilson, um, built an enormous home, and those children had wings. That's right. That's right. <laughs> These weren't wings. These are all right next to each other. In fact, some of them even shared bathrooms, you know? Yeah. And so, like Jack and Jill rooms, and uh, they, they, they're lovely, they're, they're wonderful, they're beautifully furnished, but they're they're not wings. They're of the wings, house. and they were personalized for the kids' tastes, you know. So, like the the ones that were really into sports had all kind of sports stuff on the wall. Uh, Eleanor's, uh, um, no, the daughter's name is Josephine. Uh, Josephine's room had Detroit Tiger pennants and things and, you know, things that were really personalized. Just really, yeah, charming. Yeah. And another thing that's interesting there, um, they, the, uh, the Ford staff, Eleanor and Edsel, were really good to the people that worked for them. And in fact, um, the, the, the chauffeur and the head groundskeeper actually lived right on the premises and had their own, uh, they lived in, uh, two different, uh, areas, um, of the, the estate. And their kids there played with the Ford kids and grew up with them. Uh, they had um, a certain number of people that actually lived in the home. Uh, they were all unmarried women. And um, you don't see like a huge difference in going from the – it's not like upstairs, downstairs where uh, you're going from this palatial estate into the the servants' quarters, which are very austere and kind of right. cell like. No, they were nice. You wouldn't even really know you were going from one part of the house to the other. That's you know, interesting, you, yeah. isn't it? So they they had um, comfortable places to you know live and lounge, and um, you know it 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 wasn't like a uh, a huge hierarchy, uh, which I found kind of nice and kind of refreshing. You know, the more I hear about Edsel. And his wife, the more I like them. Yeah, and it's a shame that he couldn't have lived longer, you know? I know, and the thing that people remember is the car. It's the car. I mean, Henry Hank the Deuce, you know, his his oldest son who uh, always had regrets afterwards, and he said, you know, how did I let that happen, that, you know, I let this cultural joke, you know, be named for my dad? And um, 
And it happened after Edsel's death. Oh, yeah. So he didn't even know about it. No, no. And had Edsel had any part in the design of the car, it probably would have been a a very different car. Right. You know? Um, So, yeah, that that was a shame. And that was a whole division, actually. You know, Mm -hmm. it was not just one car. I used to think the Edsel was just one model. No, there were four sub-models. That's right. The Citation, the Corsair, the... Pacer and the Ranger, and I, I think originally the family really did not want to put the Edsel name on the car, but they were mm-hmm. kind of talked into it, um, and it, it just, you know, there were a lot of reasons why it was such a failure. I think it wasn't what people were looking for, their marketing research just kind of fell apart. I and think it, it was- also happened at a point where, you know, I mean, the, the, there were really good times in the fifties, but there were also depressed times. And it came out right at a point where, um, you know, we were kind of in a downturn and people weren't going to pump all this money into this car that was kind of a little odd design and had a kind of a funny, fun, uh, funny looking front end. And, um, you know, afterwards, people have looked back and said, you know, it wasn't that terrible a design. It just wasn't something uh, – it it just couldn't live up to the height. When I know. look at pictures of it now, it kind of just looks like all the other old-timey yeah. cars yeah. of that era. Yeah, right. But at, I think maybe it was a little overhyped. Yeah, it they, was. You know, talked about it a little bit too much yeah. before it came out. and But it was a big – Disaster, and the but if you, mo- if you really want to look yeah. at a, a a car that that should that is it really is associated with Edsel Ford, but he didn't plop his name on it, it would be the Lincoln Continental, which was a gorgeous car, you know, yes. and and throughout classically beautiful, yeah, car. classically beautiful car from the very first time it was, and the Lincoln Zephyr uh, from the very first time that they were um, you know designed, um, they were. They were the best that America had. And so um, those are the things that should be associated with that solar that should have their, his name on them, but, but they don't because well, was, that wasn't the way he no. rolled. Right. It was just kind of a two-year disaster from mm-hmm. 1958 to 1960. And the Ford Motor Company lost $250 million mm-hmm. during this whole Edsel disaster deal. And in the, in the saddest thing about it is that the very name Edsel just became a popular symbol for a commercial failure. I know. To the point that this is what we remember about poor Edsel Ford, who, like I said, I kind of came to love. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Uh, you know, I've, I've looked at a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, living near Meadowbrook Hall, as you and I both do, and in and, Rochester, uh, and, and I'm just growing up in Detroit and being uh, so uh, knowledgeable about uh, the great uh, automobile families. Um, it it was a total surprise to me to discover how much I really liked this guy, you know, and how much he did for the city civically. And um, and and for his family and for the people around him, he really did have a vision. And it's too bad he didn't live to really see that happen. I mean, I can't imagine anyone. Of course, he wouldn't be around now. But I can't imagine anyone uh, um, loving the the rebirth of Detroit that we've been talking about. The comeback. The comeback uh, as much as Edsel Ford. Would. You know, I think it was just part of his nature. He wasn't a pushy type of person. And, you know, what do they say about the squeaky wheel gets the attention? <laughs> he was no squeaky wheel. He was no squeaky wheel. You know, he uh, he didn't have lots of marriages and uh, he wasn't – he wouldn't uh, appear in the tabloids all the time. And yet under the radar, he was really an important per- person in American industry and in um, in cultural development during that period of time. You know, for Detroit – Comeback City, De- Detroit, I mean, it would be so different right. without Ford, without right. the Ford family. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, in in, in so many respects. I mean, um, his son, of course, uh, William Clayford, uh, became the owner of the the Lions, and right. even now, um, his widow Martha Ford, in her mid nineties, is still uh, actively running the team, showing up in the locker room to give them pep talks. Right. You know, I love that. And my father and my grandfather both worked for Ford. Mm-hmm. My grandfather, um, William Shankin, I loved his story. He lived in Alpena with his family. They had a farm. And when Henry Ford started his factory, the whole family moved down to Detroit Yeah, and got jobs in the factory. Right. And my grandfather was, I think, about 19 or 20. And he said he was working on the line and the family was really happy to be making, what, $5 a day, which mm-hmm. was a huge amount of money back then. You know, this is the 20s or, you know, the late, you know, 1919, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so he was working on the line and he told me this story himself. He said that he was working and he would see these guys walk into the factory in suits and go up to offices. And he thought to himself, That's what I want to do. (laughs) I want to be one of those guys. Right. So he went to college at night and he became an accountant and they hired him at Ford as an accountant. Then when my dad became older, he was also an accountant. He went to go work for Ford also. And uh, my dad stayed with Ford for quite a while and then moved over to Ford Tractor and, uh, Worked as the head of the printing department for many, many years. So I have a big Ford legacy in my family here. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just love the story of my grandfather, you know, working on the line. And he was the first person in his family to ever go to college or even think about going to college. But he did. And he encouraged my dad to go. And, you know, Ford has been very good to my family. Right. So um, today, the descendants of Henry Ford control the Ford Motor Company, um, although they have a minority in ownership of 2%. Um, and a member of the Ford family has controlled the Detroit Lions NFL franchise since 1963. Mm-hmm. So um, William Clay Ford, he's our guy right now at Ford. That's right. He's, and he's the... William Clay the second, right? William Clay for the second, yes. Right. He's the great grandson of Henry, great grandson also of Harvey Firestone. That's right. Tires. And his father was William Clay Ford Sr. Yeah. And um you know, we've talked about Campus Martius in Comeback City, and it is really the very, very center of Comeback City, the rebirth of Detroit's downtown. And uh, Edsel Ford II um, offered a legacy gift of a plan that was developed in 2001. So we have Edsel Ford II, you know, to kind of thank for uh, our beautiful new Campus Martius downtown. Oh, that, you know, I didn't even realize that. That's great. Yeah. And um, we don't hear about them as much as we used to. We seem to hear a lot of other names as mm-hmm. far as Comeback City and the rebirth of Detroit. But recently um, they have, you know, they have made uh, some announcements about the train station. Um, which yes, is that's very exciting. very exciting. Yeah, and the rebirth of Corktown. I mean, everybody's talking about uh, Ford, the the Ford development and, and research actually um, going in there, and um, that's helping to transform that whole area. Yeah, for people that say don't live in Detroit and don't know the history, the vacant Michigan Central Depot. Mm-hmm is located at Michigan Avenue and 14th Street in Corktown, which is um, west of downtown Detroit. And I think it's the oldest part of the it city, is. It's actually. It is. It's the oldest neighborhood in the city. And uh, um, it's gone through lots of changes. But it, um, after Tiger Stadium moved out, um, people thought, 
there's just not going to be anything there. And yet there were still little remnants of cool architecture and stuff. And, uh, you know, now it's kind of the hot place to be. It's where a whole lot of the new startup restaurants are. Great restaurants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and uh, now you've got uh, people moving into lofts there and you've got tech companies setting up. It's kind of a hip, cool there. place yeah. to be yeah, for sure. Yeah. But that train station, 13 stories high, 500,000 square feet, built in 1913, and it's owned by Maddie Marone. Yeah. And of the but, ambassador, ambassador Bridge fan. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, it has had a partial renovation over the last two years, including the installation of hundreds of windows, a freight elevator, an electrical service. I mean, you know, it's been the probably biggest example of ruin porn, you know, for pa- right. for how many years? I yeah, mean, probably many. I mean, it was like a, a see-through building. Multiple you could actually look through decades. it because everything was, uh, you know, missing. It was just a shell. So, um, yeah, if that could come, be- uh, come back, that would be such a symbolic thing. It would be wonderful. And, you know, there have been many plans for that. You know, beautiful. And it is absolutely beautiful when you drive by it. It's it's a lovely, gorgeous building. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had heard at one point the police uh, department was planning to move in there. That kind of fell apart. Right. Then I heard it was going to be redeveloped for residential, which would be really cool. Um, but now um, – Ford is talking about making it a center for autonomous vehicles, mm-hmm. and that's pretty exciting too. I mean, it's not a done deal at this point, but no. well, I think I think it's just it probably it's just so um, incredibly expensive to try to retrofit something like that, you know, for for modern uses. But um, you know, it I think Ford would see the symbolic um, benefit of it. Both to the company and and to the region, so um, I'm I'm hopeful they can do it. If there's anyone that can, you know, a company like Ford, maybe the people. So yeah, I think you know they could definitely stir up the interest in it, you know, for investors and you know, and it would be wonderful. It would be great. I mean, that could hopefully, you know, do a lot to get rid of our. Horrible ruin porn <laughs> reputation here. <laughs> it would. People would be going to see how beautiful what uh, it, it is rather than, you know, what an eyesore it is. <laughs> it would make a big difference. Well, Ed, you know, I've really enjoyed learning a lot more about Edsel Ford and yeah, his too. legacy. It has been great. And um, I want to thank you all for joining us on our journey into Detroit's past, present, and future. And we invite you all to explore the Comeback City. <laughs>